Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. Survivor 46 is here, and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to the 386th episode of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporter's Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and my guest today is a brilliant and funny writer, talker, and thinker, a sardonic wit in the vein of Dorothy Parker, whose writer's block has prevented her from producing new written material for the last 40 years, but who regularly churns out priceless gems on the speaker circuit and during TV appearances. She is now at the age of 70 as associated with the city of New York as just about anyone, and also is the subject of Pretend It's a City, a new Netflix docuseries directed by Martin Scorsese, his second project about her 11 years after 2010's public speaking, the inimitable Fran Lebowitz. Over the course of our conversation, the 70-year-old and I discussed how a young woman who was kicked out of high school and never attended college wound up living in New York and writing for Andy Warhol's Interview magazine at the age of just 20, how her first book of essays, 1978's Metropolitan Life, came to be a giant hit, and why she only ever wrote one other book of note, 1981's Social Studies, how she essentially pioneered the speaker circuit, and why she loves nothing more than taking audience questions— what she makes of the international attention that has come with being at the center of a show on Netflix at a time when she herself uses neither Netflix nor Wi-Fi nor a computer nor a cell phone, and when she and her beloved city are only just beginning to emerge from the pandemic, plus much more. And so without further ado, let's go to that conversation. Fran, thank you so much for taking the time to do the Hollywood Reporters podcast. It's great to have you. And I guess, first of all, can I ask where you are in the city at the moment? I'm, I'm guessing it's not at home because you've always shared that you do not use a, a computer or phone there. It's Netflix. Netflix has offices in New York. Yes. And they also have all of these modern devices. Yes. And also people who know how to work them. <laughs> well, thank you for, you for stepping in. Here at Netflix. Yes, yes. So you are, of course, you know, on, on this podcast, we kind of just go back through the major moments of each guest's life and career. And, and I think the thing I want to begin by asking you is just everybody obviously so associates you with New York. But in fact, if they haven't yet seen Pretend It's a City or, you know, totally familiarize themselves with you yet, they may not know that you were actually born and raised elsewhere. Can you just talk about uh, your, you know, where that was and what your parents did for a living? 
I was born uh, and grew up in Marstown, New Jersey, uh, which uh, is a small town. It's still there, <laughs> even without me. Um, it's very different, um, but not as different as I am. Um, and um, my father owned an upholstery shop and a, a little furniture store. My mother did various things over my lifetime. Sometimes she worked there. Sometimes she worked other places. When I was very uh, small, she didn't work at all. So mm-hmm. I, mm-hmm. I was a child in the 1950s, and middle-class women did not work. You and know. did you have any siblings? I have. I still have mm-hmm. a younger sister, um, a younger, much taller sister, very irritating. <laughs> um, and uh, that's where I lived. Yeah. So— I always have been curious to know sort of just what you were like as a young child. Were you already fully formed as sort of the Fran Leibowitz who we know today or were did it, you know, went along the line, did uh, your positions sort of uh, or outlook on the world harden a little bit? Well, obviously, I was somewhat different. I was shorter, not that much <laughs> shorter, but somewhat shorter. Um, well, I mean, the best way I could explain it to people, you know, in this format um, is that on my first day of school, my first day of kindergarten, I was four years old. Four. Let's admit this is a very young child. Yes. I was very eager to go to school. I couldn't wait to go to school. You know, this is the thing you're supposed to want in a child, a child who can't wait to get to school. I got to school. My first day of kindergarten ended with me sitting in the corner (laughs) with a Band-Aid pasted over my mouth, holding up a sign saying, I am a chatterbox. (laughs) So I guess that was uh, largely formed early on. Uh, How about writing? When did writing first become an interest? You know, I actually wrote, uh, when I say a book, I mean, it was probably like 40 or 50 pages long uh, when I was uh, eight years old, because that's around the time that I realized that people wrote books. Yes. Like up until then, I thought they were like part of nature, like trees, (laughs) you know, like I couldn't believe that a person who apparently I did had no higher an opinion of human beings then than I do now. Like, what do you mean (laughs) a person could write a book? Like a person could make an oak tree? A person could Mm -hmm. make the Atlantic Ocean? Um, And so I thought, well, hey, I'm a person. I'm going to write a book. I'm probably not going to make an oak tree or the Atlantic Ocean. And so that was really when I first started liking to write. Now, you, I guess, right up until the pandemic, had this very interesting dichotomy, from what I understand, where you love being alone. You need to live alone. You don't want to necessarily even have a party at your apartment or anything like that, even though it's apparently a lovely, spacious uh, apartment. But you love being around people when you want to be around people. You're always out and about, probably more than anyone I know of. So what was the root of that? Do you? How do you explain that? Because I'm kind of uh, two people. I am, yeah. you know, one one or two sides, I would say. One side um, is uh, very solitary. You know, uh, that side also loathes domestic life. I don't Mm -hmm. want people walking around my apartment. I don't want to hear footsteps. (laughs) I don't want to hear a key in the door. If I hear a key in the door, I think someone's breaking in, and they would be. On the other hand, I'm very sociable. So when I'm not in my apartment, I'm incredibly sociable. I'm very gregarious. I like to go out. And so since in the last, you know, I'm not certain how long this is, but the last couple Mm -hmm. of weeks, many more things Mm -hmm. have opened up in New York. 
Um, mm-hmm. And so recently, like last week, I got a phone message saying, you know, you're never home. Are you out all the time now? And so when I <laughs> called this friend of mine back, I said, yes, I'm out all the time. I will mm-hmm. go anywhere. Mm-hmm. Anywhere. <laughs> My standards have fallen. You can't imagine. If You're someone, the new Sylvia Miles, right? <laughs> not Sylvia Miles. Not, my standards have not fallen to that uh, level. And I might say, you seem a little young to even know who Sylvia Miles was. Um, but I, uh, I'm telling you, if someone is having a very small dinner party in their apartment um, and I don't even know them, give me the address. I'm going anyway. <laughs> so when you were, you know, growing up, did your parents kind of project onto you a desire that you, all right, you're going to go to college and then you're going to become a X, Y, or Z, or were they pretty much just do your own thing? (laughs) First of all, there were no parents like that then. None. Not in the entire country, or there might have been in the whole country like four people like that. But Mm -hmm. I not only didn't know anyone like that, any parents, I don't know anyone who know anyone like that. Um, (laughs) The thing that my parents stressed to me the most was going to college. That was the most important thing. You know, uh, uh, my mother had gone to college, my father not. Both my parents were first-generation Americans. Um, That was, without question, the most important thing. That was important because that was something you had to do. The assumption was that the other thing I would do would be to get married and have children. That wasn't stress because that was just a given, you know. Mm -hmm. Uh, So my parents didn't really discuss my future with me. I, the only thing I really remember my mother ever saying to me about my future, other than go to college, was she once said to me, you know, um, you should marry a college professor because you like to read so much. So if you were married mm-hmm. to a college professor, you would always live in a place where there were a lot of books. So Well, you wound up in one anyway. Well, armed with that, <laughs> I went out into the world. <laughs> right. Well, and I guess, you know, in a way, went out into the world earlier than your parents might have. Therefore, uh, your mother certainly would have liked, because just to remind people, I guess you were essentially asked to leave high school, right? Did not go to college. Forget about things that people today might assume, like, oh, journalism school or something. You were at, what was it, 19, leaving to go from New Jersey into New York, where neither you nor your family knew anyone, right? No one. I mean... When I told my parents I was moving to New York, I said, I'm moving to New York. I'm going to be a writer. I mean, if I said to my parents, I'm moving to Mars, I'm going to be a Martian pastry chef. It couldn't have been like more like ridiculous stuff. And my, what my mother said to me was, but we don't know anyone in New York. And mm-hmm. I didn't understand what she meant at all. I thought she meant I wouldn't have any friends. So I said, oh, well, I'll make friends. But she didn't mean that. She meant we don't know anyone in New York because although yeah. my mother, you know, wasn't the most sophisticated person on planet Earth, she knew what New York was. You know, right. you have to know people. We don't know anyone. And so uh, she was right in that way. We didn't know anyone. I was right. I made friends. Um, and then eventually I grew up and now I'm the person you have to know. That's right. So you arrived there. It was what, 1969? Uh, 1970. 1970. So in your mind, before you went to New York, before you'd ever really experienced it, what what for you was the appeal of it? Well, I've been to New York numerous times. We lived in New Jersey, so it wasn't like I right. it wasn't like I was coming, you know, from uh, the Gobi Desert. I'd never seen New York. Right. You know, we went to New York very frequently. Um, I always asked to go to New York on my birthday. You know, what do you want to do on your birthday? I always had the same birthday wish. I want to go to the Museum of Modern Art, you know, and I want to go to Little Italy to eat. 
Um, and those yeah. were the two of the things yeah. I did. Um, those are two of my favorite things to do still, although Little Italy is much smaller now. Uh, mm-hmm. But I, uh, so I, I always wanted to live in New York, always. You know, uh, mm-hmm. from the time I, even though I really enjoyed my childhood, I know this is mm-hmm. a thing no one ever says because apparently yeah. it's hardly ever true of people. But yeah. I really enjoyed my childhood. You know, partially I enjoyed being a child. You know, I mean, some people are suited to being a child. Some people are suited to being teenagers. Not that many, by the way. Um, right. And some people are suited to be, but I am so suited to being a child because I'm so suited to having no responsibilities. <laughs> you know, no real responsibilities. You know, chores are not responsibilities. You know, right, um, right. and it was very um, uh, pretty town. It was a very nice town to be a child in. It was the 1950s, and so once you got a bicycle, which was the main goal of children, um, mm-hmm. you could go anywhere you wanted. And they never even asked you where you went. Right. You know, you would right. be home right. at certain times. But I mean, it's the opposite of, you know, the way children are treated now, you know, which constantly parents know not only where they are, they're with them. You know, yes. they talk to them 50 times a day. I think, you know, part of this was a product of our mothers not working. So, I mean, when I say not working, they didn't leave the house. So our mothers yes. spent more than enough time with us. They couldn't stand having us around. Like <laughs> If I was, you know, like if I lingered over lunch for two minutes, my mother would look at me like, have you lost your mind? Get out of the house. <laughs> get out of the house, you know, on like the weekends, on Saturday and Sundays, right. get out of the house, you know, right. uh, unless it was pouring with rain. What are you doing here? Get out of the house. Well, like when you were kicked out of the house, though, you were not playing sports. You weren't. So what What would you do when you were out of the house? No, when I was a little kid, we played games, you know, we, uh, yeah. I lived uh, in a play, an area that was surrounded by woods. So we went in the woods, you know, um, yeah. but also once I had a bike. You know, we went what we called uptown, not exactly mm-hmm. the uptown here. We went to the movies. We went to the movies all the time. Right. You know, mm-hmm. and now I hear children talk about movies, um, and they, they're full of critical opinions. It's like every child <laughs> is Andrew Saris. You know, to <laughs> us, movies, good. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, how was the movie? Good. It was a movie. Yeah, you know, right, right. I love movies. We love movies. Because here's the thing. Movies weren't school. Movies weren't all things you had to do. Movies were fun. Anything offered to us as officially being fun, we thought, yeah, fun. Well, what's interesting, though, to me is that apparently you were also getting in trouble for doing the thing the parents wish their kids would do more of today, which is reading. I got in a lot of trouble for reading my whole life because, first of all, I would read in school, in class. Mm-hmm. You know, we had these, like, little wooden desks, um, not with quill pens, not that old, uh, <laughs> but these little wooden desks. And the, your, your, like, say, geography book would be on your desk. And then on my lap, under the desk, say, would be, I remember, James Thurber. Because I was mm-hmm. thrown out of class for laughing so hard. <laughs> you know, I could not, I knew not to laugh. Don't laugh, friend. You're in geography class. Um, but, you know, it's impossible to read James Thurber without laughing aloud, right. um, right. unless you're a moron. So if anyone out there says, oh, he's not funny, then I'm sorry, you're an idiot. Yeah. Um, so... <laughs> Uh, I got thrown out of class for that. And then in my uh, house, I had a desk. My desk in my house had a drawer in it, in the middle. Um, and so I would put my algebra book or something on the desk. And then the book I was reading in the drawer. And if my mother came into the room, I would just like close the you know drawer with my <laughs> stomach. Um, but my mother also would sometimes just knock on my door yelling, I know you're reading in there. Like, you know, like I know you're, you're doing heroin in there. I don't right, know what you're right, in there. Right. Don't think you can fool us. <laughs> we can hear that reading. Well, so 
Another thing I wondered is when you were, let's say pre-New York for you, pre-moving to New York, who was the closest thing to what you are today in terms of somebody who was a writer, who was also a public figure in terms of appearing on TV and doing things? I was thinking like, what, James Baldwin or somebody like that? Or were, was there anyone that was really doing what you do? Well, you know, I mean, television was so different then. I mean, for instance, mm-hmm. I, the reason I heard of James Baldwin as an example, um, mm-hmm. was because there was a television show when I was a child called The David Susskind Show. It was an afternoon, Sunday afternoon, I think, talk show. And my mother was watching it, and I came in, and there was James Baldwin. I had never heard of him. But I also had never heard anyone talk like that because I never heard the conversation of an intellectual. You know, I mean, so I was so riveted by this. And then I asked my mother about him. My mother was instantly contemptuously, you don't know who James Baldwin is? <laughs> like, excuse me, you are the mother. Why didn't you tell me? Yeah, right. Baldwin? It's like, um, so I, I mean, uh, James Baldwin was not, on, the the writers that were on TV the most that I recall being on TV the most were like Gore. Gore Vidal was on TV a lot. You know, yep, yep. Uh, Mailer was on TV. Truman Capote was on TV. It's hard for me to imagine anyone ever wanted to be like Truman Capote, but Gore Vidal was very uh, good on television, you know. Mm -hmm. And one thing I did learn from Gore, from watching him on television, was when I started going on television, I I realized that he, if he wasn't asked the question he wanted to be asked, he asked himself. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So he would like answer this question. He would ask it as if like, I mean, the people who were on TV then were like Johnny Carson. Okay, so right. Johnny Carson didn't actually ask him that question, but he would act like Johnny Carson asked him that question, and then he right. would answer it. So there were uh, there were some. There weren't very many women, I could tell you that. There, um, in fact, when I say weren't very many, I can think of well, Lillian Hellman was famously uh, on TV a few times. Uh, Mary McCarthy, but that was later. That was not when I was a child. Who was the woman who was on when? Gore Vidal and Norman Mailer had their big blow up on Dick Cavett. There was another woman who sort of sided with Gore Vidal. Do you remember? I think she may have. I I think it was a someone in the vein of what, who we're talking about. But well, anyway, I think you're right, matter. but I, I can't really yeah. remember. But yeah. basically, um, it would be really unusual for in a, in a fight between uh, Norman Mailer and Gore Vidal for a woman not to side with Gore Vidal. You know, <laughs> but in a fight between Gore Vidal and a woman... Right. Story. right, right. Well, okay. So now the thing that may be hard for people to wrap their minds around is that, again, you, you show up in New York at 19 or 20. And first of all, the fact that you were able to find a place that you could afford to live in New York at that age, that's probably not without, without much, parent, if any, parental financial support. I mean, that's unfathomable today, right? To be in the city at that age. And you made it work though, by driving cabs, cleaning houses, even writing some pornographic books. Uh, And then though, the big turning point, I guess the first time you were hired to be a writer, well, beyond the porn books was uh, at 21, where this, this small magazine run by the, the woman who was dating Mingus, who you've talked about, um, this place was called Changes. How does a 21 year old with no writing experience and no prior work experience of of any you know notable kind get into get paid to be a writer at, at, in that situation. Well, it was it was roundabout. It was nefarious. In yeah. other words, 
Um, I had all these jobs you mentioned and many other yeah. jobs like that, horrible jobs. Yeah. Um, and I, very, I worked five or six days a week, um, but I never worked on Wednesdays because Wednesdays was when the Village Voice came out. And the Village okay. Voice is where they had all the wanted ads. So I would take Wednesday off and look for another job because no matter what job I had, I didn't want that job. I want a different job. And one thing that was very plentiful when I was young where there were just zillions of bad jobs. You could wake up with no money, which I often did. At the end of the day, you could have some money in your hand because there were just mm -hmm. zillions of bad jobs available. Um, right. So I saw, uh, in looking for one of these bad jobs, I saw a little ad in the Village Voice saying, wanted like advertising director for, you know, underground magazine. So I thought, it's a magazine. I never heard of it. But if I got a job there, maybe I could write for this magazine. And so I called. I went for an interview. I never, I, there have been very few times in my life I wanted something as much as this job. Mm -hmm. You know, I got this job, thereby beating out um, several people who knew how to sell advertising. <laughs> I did not sell one ad because I never even tried to sell an ad. Like I would sit there, mm -hmm. I would like talk to the woman on the magazine, I would chat with people because I knew hardly anyone read this magazine. Mm -hmm. So I could not bring myself to say, you just take an ad in this magazine that no one reads. Uh, right. I did like, uh, and so after a while, I kind of talked my way into, let me write for the magazine. Mm -hmm. uh, you can see that, I mean, it's like the opposite of what most people do. Um, you can see I'm very bad at the job you, I have. So <laughs> let, give me a better job. Because I failed at this one, um, right. and let me do that job. Um, and so she said, okay. And it was pretty soon after that, like what, a year later that you were able to essentially upgrade that job to going, I, you, this is, you knock on, literally just, what, go and knock on the door of Andy Warhol's interview magazine, right? No, I didn't just knock on the door. Uh, I wanted... I, I changes, I was writing book reviews first. Um, mm -hmm. And then the woman who was writing movie reviews got an actual writing assignment from the New York Times magazine. So she was, of course, there was like, people were shocked. This wonderful thing happened to her. <laughs> so she left for like a couple of months to write this thing for, for uh, the Times. And so I said, well, let me have her job while she's gone. So I started writing movie reviews and people started talking to me about what I was writing. And so I realized... I mean, maybe everyone else in the world knew this before I did. Many more people are interested in movies than books. <laughs> many, many more people, especially then in the 70s. Yeah. We were obsessed with movies. So mm -hmm. when she came back, I said, well, I still want to write movie reviews. Well, you can't because now, you know, she's coming back and she's going to do it. So I had a friend, uh, a wonderful writer who who died last week named Ed McCormick, who, oh, I'm sorry. who worked yeah. for interview among other places. And I said, Ed, can you get me in to see the editor of interview? Cause I would like to write some movie reviews for them. Um, and so he arranged it. Uh, he arranged me the appointment and that's how I started writing movie reviews. I have to stress how little these jobs paid, by the way. I mean, it's not like, you know, you talked your way into being, you know, the chairman of Merrill Lynch. Okay. <laughs> you know, I mean, they, they paid very, very little. Right. Right. Well, and so However, I guess particularly with Interview Magazine, you were now once once you were brought on board, you're now exposed to a whole different part of New York society. Right? I mean, just to contextualize for people, I believe this is pretty soon after Annie Warhol was shot. He's got his whole circle who you're now a part of. And all of that suddenly is opened up to you. Right. Did that was that 
part of the appeal of even trying to go there? Or was it just that it was a, a kind of better magazine? That was uh, no, it was just that it was a place to write. Yes, Andy had been shot. I don't uh, before prior to that, you know, yeah, like yeah. maybe I don't know, two years. I, I don't really know when he was shot. I don't remember. I know that, you know, this seems to be unimaginable to people, but I really wasn't that interested in hanging around the factory. I was interested he had a magazine, you know, and and uh, the first time I went to have a meeting with the editor, um, it was in Union Square, the factory then, and the elevator, you know, came up to the floor, wherever it was, and, and there was then a uh, steel door. When the elevator doors opened, there was a steel door, and Paste taped to that door was a piece of legal paper that someone scrawled on it, knock loudly and announce yourself. So I banged on the door and I heard someone say, who's there? And I said, Valerie Solanas. <laughs> Who is the woman who shot Andy? Okay. Oh, no. So, and then Andy opened the door. So if you think, friend, that was stupid. I think, how stupid is this? Um, so he opened the door. I was shocked to see Andy there. I don't know why. It was yeah. a factory. And now I wasn't going to see him. I was going to see this. And it just didn't occur to me that he would be there. I don't know why. It's kind of yeah, stupid yeah. to not yeah. have known that, to have thought about it. Um, but he opened the door and he said, uh, like, you know, what do you want? Whatever. And I said, I have an appointment with uh, Glenn, who was the editor at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, he said, what do you do? I said, I'm a writer. Oh, come in. Because no one wanted to be a writer when I was young. So now all kids want to be writers. But I mean, no one wanted to be a writer. Everyone my age that was wanted to be an artist of any kind at all wanted to be a filmmaker or a musician. That was pretty much it. And those were the two big things. And so, and that's very much reflected in what was produced by people my age, you know. So like, it was very easy for me to get in there because they had millions of people coming. I'm a photographer, you know, I'm a filmmaker, I'm a musician. Um, people people coming to the factory wanted to be actors mostly, you know, but yeah, uh, yeah. so that uh, it, it made it easy for me that I wanted to be this thing no one else wanted to be. It was like saying, I want to be a shepherd, you know. Right. <laughs> you know, so o- over, those, over those next few years when you're pumping out uh, pieces for – this column that you did for interview, I cover the waterfront. Were you always thinking, I'm just, I've got to do something for this week's or, you know, whatever the next issue, or were you always thinking in, or was, was it sort of in the back of your head that this is all building up a compilation for a book at some point, which is what these essentially became, right? This was the meat of your first hit book, right? Not really. I mean, no. not, I mean, for the first column I wrote for, um, interview was called the best of the worst. It was movie reviews. And I only reviewed bad movies. I mean, knowing they would be bad. Um, (laughs) And there was a a studio called uh, American International Pictures, AIP. They made horror movies, all this kind of junk that mostly was shown in drive-ins. It was very rarely shown in New York. Some of it was shown in Times Square then. Um, And so the screenings in New York were mostly distributor screenings. And I would go and there would be like 10 guys who own drive-ins, smoking cigars, and me watching these (laughs) movies. Um, So I, uh, and also I got paid by the review. I got paid $10 a review. So I would always try to do 10 reviews to get $100 a month was almost my rent. So Mm -hmm. uh, then uh, I got kicked off all the screening lists because uh, people, all the uh, public relations people said, how can I invite you to screenings where you write a column called the best of the worst? (laughs) 
Um, <laughs> so I got kicked out of all these screening lists. And so I started writing a column called, um, uh, I covered the waterfront, which was just mm-hmm. everything. Uh, no, mm-hmm. I always wanted to write a book, but mm-hmm. I, I was not doing that. It never occurred to me these things would be in the book. And in fact, they were not really. Mm-hmm. But what happened was an editor called me, a woman named Laurie Cowan, who was also a writer, who's now also dead for many years. And interview was read, you know, first of all, by almost no one. And then the people who did read it were almost all gay. You know, it was a really, not even a niche publication. So um, Laura Coleman was a, a woman uh, who was a straight woman who was an editor at Dutton, but who luckily for me had some horrible flu that lasted like three weeks. And she was in bed for three weeks, and she had read everything possible that she wanted to read. And she told her boyfriend, go to the newsstand, look it up if you're young, what a newsstand was. (laughs) Um, Go to the newsstand and buy any magazine that I've never heard of. You know, so he came back with like, you know, Yachty Magazine, Motocross Magazine, and Interview Magazine. And so she started reading my columns. And she just called me up one day and said, I'm Lori Cowan. I'm an editor at E.P. Dutton. Um would you like to write a book? And I said, not yet. I'm not ready to, I don't think I'm ready to write a book. She said, uh-huh. well, would you like to have lunch? Yes. <laughs> yes, I'm always ready to have lunch. Um, even at dinner, I'm ready to have lunch. So, right, um, right. And so then I eventually did write the book and that's, uh, but I, I um, you know, I was 24 at the time uh, and I, I wanted to write a book, but I really didn't think I could write a book. And truthfully, I really couldn't. You know, I mean, I really couldn't have done it without, you know, someone, an editor calling me, explaining me, yes, you can do it. You know, here's how you would do it. Because I'm of the age where I really thought of a book as a novel, you know, mm-hmm. um, and and uh, that was like, that's a real book, a novel. Well, and instead what you did with Metropolitan Life, what would how would you describe it to somebody, you know, who hasn't read it yet? Would you say more like, sort of in a form that's not as available anymore, I guess, es- essays, right? Well, people, you know, when I publish a book, people, you know, call them essays. And I mm-hmm. was like really shocked because to me, an essayist was like Emerson, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. look it up. Um, yeah. <laughs> and I, um, I thought it was pretentious to call myself an essayist. You know, mm-hmm. now, as you know, you know, every nine-year-old, you know, who, you know, writes about, you know, what they feel, you know, um, right. says this is an essay. Um, but right, course, right. You know, they're really not. Um, <laughs> yes. But uh, so it was weird, you know, to publish a book like that then um, because I remember that, you know, the the, the editor, not Laurie, but the, the head of the house, the one who owned the house, saying, you know, this kind of humorous essay, this kind of comic essay, it has not sold in this country since the 1930s. With what, like sort of Dorothy Parker? Type, yeah, like in the 1930s, type, there were yeah. a lot of people who wrote like that, you know. But, yeah. you know, and it was also a very common form in uh, England, you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's basically an English form, you know. But this this isn't going to sell now. You know, this is not the kind of thing that people will buy. And so, you know, we're going to give you, you know, $2 and we're going to print, you know, four copies. And, um, but I was thrilled, by the way. And, uh, you yeah. Know, um, and so um, they were wrong. Yeah. I mean, really wrong because so I, it comes out in 78, you're 27 and it's a bestseller. I mean, how how do you explain why it did click with people when that was not something they were accustomed to consuming at that time? 
You know, a lot of it is luck. You know, I mean, the book is the book. And so, you know, you can judge the merits of the book. Lori Cowan, who had been my editor, as I mentioned, had gotten fired. Uh, she got fired. When that happens, or not any longer, but when that used to happen, I mean, mm-hmm. people still get fired. But when that um, <laughs> happened, uh, it, she was a junior editor. This I was not even a junior writer. You know, this is a first book by no one signed up by a junior editor. That book usually goes away if the, if the editor gets uh, fired. But because the luck of having never having heat in my apartment, so always looking for other places to spend the day that were mm-hmm. warmer, I hung around mm-hmm. the offices at Dutton a lot, where I be, you know, would like drop into people's offices and chat with them. And so when Lori left, uh, there was a fairly new head of the house, a man named Henry Robbins. And he knew me from me hanging around in his office because it was warm, and he took the book. Now, to have the head of the house take your book when you're yeah, a kid like that, yeah. um, he took the book and he had a sterling reputation. He published Joan Didion's first book. He published um, Will's first book. He also did something that Lori would not have been able to do. There was the chief um, literary critic for the Times was a man named John Leonard. He took John Leonard out to lunch. Now, Lori could not have gotten John Leonard on the phone. Um, he took <laughs> him out to lunch and said, here is a book I think you'll like. And John Leonard respected Henry. Never heard of Lori. I'm not saying he disliked her, but... And John Leonard was not just the chief critic of the New York Times. The New York Times was something that a young person couldn't imagine now. The New York Times, anything they said, that's what happened. And if they said, this is good, this is good, this is good, not just in New York, not just in California, not just in Cleveland, but in Shanghai, you know, in Paris. And they were the opinion rulers of the planet Earth. Well, people would do, it was the same with like Vincent Canby with films. You could make or break a film, right? At that That's same right. time. Or anything, you know, but yeah. I mean, anything. So John Leonard reviewed my book. He was a daily reviewer. Mm-hmm. It was very hard to get a daily review because there were only seven, uh, you know, I think only five a week. Um, mm-hmm. the, it was very hard to get the New York Times book review, the Sunday book review. First, I got a Sunday book review by someone else. Then the same week, three days later, I get this review. Um, and it's also was lucky, not only those things, there wasn't that much news that day. Mm-hmm, there just mm-hmm. wasn't too much news that day. Um, there was extra space on the page and they ran a photograph of me because mm-hmm. we have these two square inches, nothing's happening. No one bombed anyone, no one, you know, so they put that <laughs> in. Um, and it happened to be the same week as the other times review. And it was really like something out of a movie. You know, yeah. it was Lana Turner went into the soda fountain, and, you know, or whatever, whichever movie star that was. And so it doesn't sound like a real thing that happened, but it is actually well, a real thing. When you say it was like a movie, how, in what ways did your life change? My life changed completely. In like, my life yeah. changed 100% in literally like five minutes. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I didn't know about this John Leonard review. You know, I didn't mm-hmm. know what was happening. And at like seven o'clock in the morning, my phone rang. I had been sleeping for probably 45 minutes at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, I answered the phone and it was Lori Cowan. And she said, have you seen the paper? And I said, what are you talking about? She said, the great review. I said, yes, I saw it. I thought she meant the Sunday review. Because yeah, the Sunday yeah. book review used to go to the publishers on Wednesdays. I said, yes, I, I saw it. She said, you did? You saw the John Leonard review? I said, John Leonard, what are you talking about? <laughs> she said, go, get up, go to the newsstand. Get buy 10 copies of the Times and come to my apartment. She lived like 15 blocks away from me. 
Mm-hmm. I got up, I go to the newsstand. I did not have enough money to buy 10 copies of the Times. Oh my gosh. <laughs> so I tell the guy, I would like to buy 10 copies of the paper, but I don't have enough money. Could you mm-hmm. give me them now and I'll come back tonight and give you the money? He said, no. Why would I do that? <laughs> so I, he said, what do you need 10 copies of paper for? I said, I'm in the paper. He said, what mm-hmm. are you talking about? You're in the paper? It's the New York Times? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Prove this to me. <laughs> so I hadn't seen it yet. So I didn't even know my yeah. picture was in it. So I looked, I looked at him yeah. and went, I can't believe you're in the newspaper. Why was someone write about you? Who are you? <laughs> so can I have 10 copies of the paper? No. <laughs> and, but I mean, I guess in a larger sense, what this all seems to have sparked was, first of all, you're now a name, right? Pretty quickly, there are people that, you know, as happened with generations of writers before you, Hollywood now wants to say, come on out for the money and the sunshine. And But you did something that was not common. I mean, a lot of these people from F. Scott Fitzgerald to any number of them had gone out, had a terrible experience in Hollywood, and that was it. You, Why did you resist even then? Again, you, you know, it's not that you were rolling in money immediately, I don't think. So like how, why, why does somebody in that position turn away an opportunity to have their stuff either made into a movie or to go and work in the movies, stuff like that? You know, I knew not to do it. Like I knew, like I have, I don't know, an instinct, like friend, that's okay for you. That's not okay for you. Don't do that. Uh, I mean, first of all, you know, if it had been a novel, maybe I would have sold it. But these were really, these essays were really about what I thought. And so I knew the only thing, when I tell you that every single studio tried to buy it as a book, and many directors, I thought, the only thing they can do with this is make up a character who's me, you know, and turn me, who is an actual person, into a cartoon. And then I will have to be, what happens to me? I'm 27. Like, I knew not to do that. Um, and many... Uh, women who were movie stars at the time tried to buy it, you know, uh, and I'm not going to say who they were because they're all still alive, but just think who were the movie stars then. And then I said, people are going to think that person is you, you know, I mean, and, and there's no way to do this. That is anything but destructive to me other than financial. Yes, obviously it's a lot of money. It's a lot more money. Um, luckily, I mean, it's not that I have to tell you the truth. I hate money. I, you know, I, I mean, I actually hate it. Um, I know I need it believe me, and it's better to have it than not to have it. Um, but truthfully, I'm very materialistic. I love things. I'm very interested in material things. I, you know, I'm not a Buddhist monk. Um, I just <laughs> wish you didn't need money to get them. Um, sure. <laughs> but, but I don't love money. So I also am a person like who thinks and have thought many times in my life, uh, you have enough money. Enough money to me means I can pay these bills. Of course, I've never had what would seem to be enough money to a rich person, you know, that's what, that's why people get, don't you ever think, you know, why is Jeff Bezos still working? Okay. Yeah, right. And so, you know, I mean, first of all, I stopped working like as soon as I can pay the rent, like, you know, little, <laughs> not as soon as I can pay the rent for the entire hemisphere, you know, mm-hmm. um, and, and it's because I don't care what Jeff Bezos says. He loves money. Mm-hmm. He loves yep. it. You know, yep. he loves it. So I don't love it. So it doesn't really matter to me. Yes, if you give it to me. The thing is, I knew, and I don't know why, say, someone like Fitzgerald didn't know this. You know, um, well, of course, you know, he was a heavy drinker, so it might have been like, mm-hmm. but, mm-hmm. you know, no one pays you for no reason. 
Mm -hmm. And they're buying something. And if you think that a Hollywood movie studio, you know, which I know hardly exists now, but if you think they are buying art, that they that their desire is to help an artist, you know, you're Mm -hmm. really an idiot. So uh, (laughs) it just seemed to me like, what are they buying? You know, and also I always would get aggravated at writers who complained about what they'd done to their books. You know, I mean, including, including, you may may or not know this, Isaac Singer complained, you know, that Barbara Streisand ruined his, uh, his, his work. You know, I always say to people who complain about this, you sold this. What do you think sell means? Sell means you don't own it anymore. Sell means, you know, it's like you sell your house. Don't complain about how the new people decorated it. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. <laughs> so in your case, you have this kind of what must have been jolting success with your first thing out of the gate. Three years later is the second social studies, and then it stopped. And I want to ask you, it's not, I don't know that I don't know that it's that you didn't uh, continue writing and it didn't get to public publication stage. I know there have been a, the children's uh, book and other things, but you have talked about and probably more as much as anyone has acknowledged writer's block. And I guess I just wonder for you, can you share when and how you first realized that that was going to be a problem? Well, I don't know when I first realized it because it was so long ago, you know, but I mean, um, <laughs> I really couldn't answer that question because I don't know, you know, because I'm sure for uh, several years, a long period of time, you know, I thought, well, I will, you know, probably next week, next, you know, um, then at a certain point, I would say now and in the last many years, other people are more interested in this than I am. You know, it's not that, you know, I know I haven't written. I'm aware of that. Um, I do not know why. Some people say why. If I knew why, obviously would I have this problem? You know, I don't know why. I have not plumbed the depths of this problem. Um, I am aware I have the problem. Probably if I hadn't, you know, uh, come into other ways of earning a living, I, maybe I would have solved it, or maybe I would have gone to medical school. I don't know. You know, not medical school. I never could have gone to medical school. But how would it actually manifest itself? You would sit down to write? No. And then no, just no, no, find? No, 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 no. I would yeah. not sit down to write. Yeah, okay. Okay? Okay. No. Sit down to write, and having trouble writing, that's just writing. That's not a yeah. writer's block. That's writing. Yeah. That's what writing is. Yeah. Writing is you sit there, you know, now I'm not talking about like journalists who have to write a certain amount, you know, but writing is you sit there. You look at the paper, or now yes, you look at the screen, and like you think, how did I ever do this? You know, each time it's like you never did it before. I mean, at least for me, and for many writers, even writers who actually write, you know, um, <laughs> it's very difficult, uh, it, especially with no subject. You know, I mean, journalists have usually a subject, or reporters have a story they're covering, or critics are writing about you know some work, or um, and you know, I really, I, I. I'm not evading your question. I don't know. Well, can I throw out one? I I have no reason to believe this is the case, but I just know from it's turned out or we've learned 
that a lot of very brilliant people, including a lot of writers, you know, it's sort of maybe there wasn't the term for it at the time or whatever, but there's now theories that they had either ADD or they were on the spectrum or different things. Is there any chance that there's something like that that could be in play? No. 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 There's so, no good excuse. If yeah. that's what you yeah. <laughs> have to say, there's no good excuse. What people never right. say and no, people never acknowledge is there is such a thing as an incredible, almost paralyzing sloth. Mm-hmm. I am a really mm-hmm. lazy person. Well, people always say, you can't be lazy. Uh, why can't I be lazy? You, there's a word lazy. It describes someone. I'm the person to describe. Right. <laughs> it may not describe you, you know. Um, and I'm, I've always been very lazy. You know, I don't like to work. You know, I've never liked to work. If I had been born into a family with money, you never would have heard of me. Believe me, I would be in my ancestral home lying on my sofa reading, where I would have been for the last many decades. So I really don't like to work, which is why I like none of the jobs I ever had. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, I finally realized, you know, Frank, you don't like to work. Let's face it. They're <laughs> which, just like, you prefer not working. I mean, most people that win the lottery retire because they don't have to work. I mean, I don't think it's a crazy idea that if you if you can if you can avoid working, uh, you you might. But uh, I have one other re- semi-related question, which is I'm looking at you on a version of Zoom right now and you are you look like Fran Lebowitz. You've got your blazer on, on the black blazer, on the white shirt. I'm assuming jeans, maybe. Uh, I I wonder, you've described that as sort of almost like a uniform. You've said you put it on every day, even if you're not going to see anyone, you're not leaving the house. Was that in some way, you know, uh, a thing to psych yourself into working? Like, all right, it's time I get up, I've got to put on my uniform to go to work. Or is that, how did this come about? Completely not accurate what you said. First of all, this is okay. not black. It's okay. a blue windowpane <laughs> check. Um, second okay. of all, it is a white shirt, though. I yes. I never call it a uniform. Other people do. Second of all, okay. I never said I wore this when I'm alone in my apartment. When I'm alone okay. in my apartment, I do wear jeans, but not these okay. good jeans that have no holes in them. <laughs> I wear the ripped up old <laughs> jeans, you know, um, and ripped up old shirts. Uh, right. But no, it, it's just, I've... It's true. I've always dressed somewhat like this. You know, obviously, when I was younger, really young, I dressed something like this, but not in these fine clothes. Um, <laughs> but I right. I know I never, although I do always get dressed. It's true that I never, like even in this year and a half where many of my friends said to me, I haven't really had clothes on in like six months. <laughs> I get dressed every day. You know, uh, not like, I don't know if you know this. It's an interesting fact, although irrelevant to what we're discussing. John Cheever, who lived on the Upper East Side um, in a building where almost all the men worked on Wall Street, uh, would get up every morning, put a suit and a tie on, get in the elevator with all the other guys going down to Wall Street. They'd all go down to the lobby. The guys would get out in the lobby, go down to Wall Street. Cheever would go into the basement where he had a little cubicle, take all his clothes off except his underwear (laughs) and sit there in his underwear and write all day. Then at the (laughs) end of the business day, he'd put the suit back on and come back up in the elevator with the Wall Street guys. Um, Isn't there something like that with with Robert Caro also, right? I think he well, Bob gets Caro, dressed and, and goes, he always had an office until pretty recently. Um, yeah, yeah. No one would call Bob Caro lazy. <laughs> no, no, no. That's it's on. Um, can you? So when you think of somebody like him, like he's actually most recently, I think, put out a book called Working yes, about how it. he, <laughs> right? So what's your what's what when you hear about how he does it? What do you think? I think Bob Caro is a like he's a incredibly talented. He is unique, Bob Carroll, because 
not only is he so such a rigorous writer with all this research and doing research in an era where research you're researching West Texas, you have to go to West Texas. Okay. So first of all, if someone just said to me, you can have this amazing achievement about Carol, but first you have to go to West Texas. And no thing. <laughs> okay. So I had to go to West Texas. So he does this huge amount of research and many um, biographers uh, uh, do research. Um, many of them like it. Many academics do research. But then he takes this stuff, this immense amount of stuff, and he writes so beautifully that that is no one except Bob Carroll. You know, that is absolutely no one. And I, uh, you know, he has supposed one more volume for the LBJ biography, and he's pretty old, you know. Yeah. And, uh, you know, uh, we always got our shoe shine in the same place. It's the only shoe shine place in New York that has a photograph up of Robert Carroll. <laughs> There's also one of Marty and Bobby De Niro on there, but also Bob Carroll. So I asked the shoeshine place, have you seen um, Mr. Carroll lately? No. Well, we did, but, you know, he gave up his office. He had an office on 57th Street because he's, you know, he's older now. It's hard for him, you know. I hope he I said, makes I, it with that last book, please yeah. finish the book. Like, yeah, I mean, I want to yeah, be alive. Yeah. He's a lovely guy. I want to be alive. Yeah, yeah. Please finish the book. These books right. are fantastic. And I will yeah. always have a tremendous gratitude toward him because I had to go to Australia a couple years ago. And mm -hmm. I didn't know, like, what is a book long enough to read <laughs> that 25-hour flight? Right. And a friend of mine, Frank Bridge, said to me, have you read The Power Broker? And I said, no, take uh -huh. that. Isn't it the, about, just about the best it's book fantastic, ever? It's fantastic, and it lasts yeah. almost all the way to Australia. <laughs> well, so in in your case, when the when the writer's block really kicked in, you figured out a solution, which is an incredible thing. I mean, I imagine that you had to because probably, like all of us, bills would accumulate. How do you make this work? And so what was the revelation this sort of leads into the topic of your first of the two films with Scorsese. But wh what was the revelation that you could actually make a living just talking, sharing your thoughts about the world? And when my first book came out, uh, someone called and asked me, I mean, within the first few weeks, oh, come to California and uh, speak at this college. So I didn't even know this existed. Since I didn't go to college, I missed this. Um, and they'll pay you. We'll pay you. You'll pay me for what? <laughs> well, what they wanted me to do then was read, you know, read from the book yeah. and then talk to the audience. You'll pay me? Yeah. But, so I started doing that and I thought, I can't believe they pay you for this. That This is like nothing. This is zero work. This is like nothing. So I did that. And I did that for many years with both books. And then after a while, I did not want to keep reading these old books. So someone from San Francisco asked me to do this a theater, a reading in theater. I said, no. I said, these books are too old. I'm not doing it. Why not have someone interview me on the stage? Mm -hmm. I mm -hmm. really believe, I'm sure that your many listeners will look on mm -hmm. the internet. I believe I invented the onstage interview because I did it because I had nothing to read. And then I started doing that. And then that's what I do now. I do that for half an hour. Someone interviews me on stage. And then I answer questions from the audience for one hour. And that is something that I would have to say it's my favorite activity. It's like the way that I know guys who play golf, it's the thing they love to do the most. I love to do this the most. I love answering questions from the audience. I love it. It's so much fun that someone, people very often, you know, what do people ask you? But I still remember my favorite question, which occurred also in San Francisco, by the way, 
during the Iranian hostage crisis. That's how long ago it was. Well, <laughs> I don't even remember when the Iranian hostage crisis. 79, yeah, right? right? Right before Reagan, yeah. So someone in San Francisco asked me, who's your favorite hostage? <laughs> because this was so amusing to me. Um, yeah. Because what people who are young don't know is the Iranian hostage crisis, one of the things it created was uh, 24-hour news. Yeah. Because before that, the news went off at 11.30. That was the news till the next day. And then Ted Koppel started having this like after thing because the whole country was riveted on this. The whole country could not believe that, that we couldn't get the hostages back. Get the hostages. What's wrong with you? Get the hostages. <laughs> and so there was constant publicity. The newspapers, the TV had everything about every single hostage, the hostage wives, where they were from, where they lived, their favorite cake. Their fa it was like, because it was so long, it was over a year. And no one could believe it. So that was my favorite question. No one could ever come up to that again. And what do you, what is it about the process that makes it your favorite thing? Is it just that it kind of keeps you on your toes? I mean, you're very quick. Yeah. It's yeah. surprising. It's fun. And also because yeah. as a child, no one ever asked me a question. Mm -hmm. No one asked children questions when I was a child. All, your life as a child in the 1950s, I don't care who you were. I don't care what your race, your economic circumstances, where you lived in the country, whether you were a boy, a girl, whatever. It doesn't matter. You know, from morning to night, being a child was to be issued a series of instructions. Mm -hmm. You know, don't do this, don't do that, do this, but this, <laughs> there, that. And in fact, my report cards when I was a, uh, in grammar school all came with the same thing. I would be like, I always look and I knew I would get yelled at. And it would say, Francis asked too many questions. Francis <laughs> asks too many questions. Francis, and my mother would say to me, you see how your teacher says you, you, you ask me too many questions. Stop asking all these questions. So, I mean, That's now, of funny. course, people like their children to ask questions because it shows the child's curious. Yeah. And naturally, child, children should ask questions because they don't know because they're children. Right. So, right. um I love being asked questions, and I don't allow ever even the journalist. It's usually a journalist who interviews me on stage. Um, it could be another kind of person, but I always say, don't show me the questions. Don't call me to discuss the questions. Ask whatever you want. I don't allow them to put mics in the audience uh, when mm -hmm. the audience is asking questions, because if there's mics in the audience, what you get from the uh, audience is answers. You get, yeah, yeah. you know, don't send up the questions on cards. Don't, you know, raise your hand. I will call on you. And for me, I cannot think of a more pleasurable recreational activity. It's very fun because you don't usually get who's your favorite hostage. That's a once in a right. time bone. <laughs> but you get some pretty weird questions. Um, and it's just, um, and it's entertaining for me. And they pay me well, for so, it. Well, so, yeah, it's an, it's an awesome uh, niche you've, you've carved out there. So I guess, uh, you know, this leads into what where obviously – some people knew you from your writing, then a few, uh, you know, other people knew you additionally from the public speaking. But I would imagine and also, you know, of course, going on Bill Maher, whatever TV shows you've appeared on. But I would guess that having two documentaries made about you probably is has exposed you to maybe the largest audience of all. And this started in 2010 with with the first of these, the, the actual documentary feature film by Scorsese public speaking. And then of course this year, pretend it's a city, which is a docu-series on Netflix, which people can and should check out. But I guess just to begin with, since these, you know, this is Martin Scorsese, probably the greatest living filmmaker taking an interest, enough of an interest 
in you and your relationship with him to make two films about, or, you know, two projects with you in 11 years. I guess I just wonder, the obvious question is, how did you two first even cross paths? And what was your re reaction when I assume it was he who suggested that you do this? You know, many people, of course, ask me where Marty and I met, but I don't know. I yeah. really don't remember where we met. Um, I and even Marty, we assume it was at a party because where else would I have met mm -hmm. him? So, mm -hmm. you know, we don't know which party. I mean, that would, you know, I've gone naturally to many more parties than Marty has. And that is why yeah, Marty yeah. has made many more movies than I've written books. <laughs> um, so I don't remember where, but I did notice and that, and I would say it was in the 80s that I met Marty. I did notice after like a few times that whenever I saw Marty, I would always end up the whole night talking to him. So I always like, we enjoyed talking to each other very much, but I never saw Marty by design in those, you know, it was like, I ran into him. You know, that's the great thing about New York. You know, you run into yeah. people all the time. And I loved his movies, of course. Uh, but uh, that did not distinguish you in New York. Everyone in New York loves his movies. So <laughs> I... Um, I guess like, what does he get about you that not many people do? Because there definitely seems to be some special connection there, even, you know, to the point where... SNL was having fun about the fact that he would, you know, in pretend it's a city, whatever you say, he just eats up. He loves it. And, and you know, not that it's uh, surprising because it's often very smart and funny, but I guess I just, he seems to click with you in a way that is uncommon. Yes. I don't know why. It's a chemical thing. No one has ever found me as funny as Marty does. You know, <laughs> it's just simply, it's his reaction to me. I mean, I can say, yeah. please pass the bread. He'll be... <laughs> so he thinks that he, he, and we just get along very well. I mean, when I get along, that's, that's really the wrong way to put it. We get along really well. I mm -hmm. really love being with Marty. You know, I really, it, now, I mean, of course, you know, that also is not unique. You know, many people would love being with Marty. It just works. You know, I mean, human relationships um, are mysterious. You know, people think that they know why. It's like marriages. People tell you, oh, they should get married because, you know, this one's like this. And I, and I say, you know, that's not what makes human relationships. Not what you see, not what seems like a good idea. You know, um, there's some sort of chemical thing. I don't know. I didn't want to do the first uh, one. Um, I uh, didn't want to do it because when I was very young, uh, when my first book came out, the BBC did a documentary about me. But, you know, what, by the time they left... Uh, they came to New York. So by the time they left, no one I knew or was related to was speaking to anyone else I knew or was related to. So, you know, <laughs> I said, I'm never going to let anyone follow me around. Mm -hmm. I, you know, it's horrible. It's invasive. So I initially said, no, I don't want to do this. I don't want someone uh, making a documentary about my life. I just don't want it. I can't believe anyone allows it. You know, it, it's incredibly invasive and horrible. Mm -hmm. um, kept calling. Well, you know, I would do it if it wasn't about my life. But if it was about what I think, mm -hmm. and that's kind of what we did. Yeah. And in a sense, with with both projects, right? I mean, Pretend It's a City is you guys are taught you get into biographical stuff, but it's for the most part, you know, you're sitting there, what, at the Waverly uh, or not the uh, not the uh, where that was the first the way we're leaving was one, right? at public speaking. Yeah. Pretend It's a City is um, where you see us inside um, yes. the Players Club. Right. And, and then, which a lot of people thought was my so, house. People said to me, Your house is so nice, friend. I said, Well, you think that's my house? Yeah, it's pretty nice, isn't it? <laughs> it's, it's very spiffy. 
Quinnell was jealous of me. <laughs> <laughs> well, how about the overall reaction, though, to this this most recent Pretend It's a City? Uh, people have eaten it up. It's a hit on Netflix. Netflix is seen in every country in the world except, like, North Korea. Not that public speaking wasn't well-received, but this seems to have... I mean, again, just the fact that it's penetrated the culture enough to be on SNL, for instance, but many other important, uh, you know, nice receptions as well. What what have you made of that? Well, that's Netflix. Because Netflix is all over the world. You know, I mean, yeah. it's as simple as that. Netflix is all over the world. Uh, there was no Netflix before Netflix. So it's like, I, can't, I mean, maybe there was that I never heard of it. But and so, yes, it's an, it's, uh, it's very odd to be my age. And have an experience that's so new, you know, which mm-hmm. is, and it's nice to have, I mean, it's nice to have most experiences in my age that are new are horrible. So, you know, <laughs> that like, oh, what's happened to my leg? What is this? So this <laughs> is like the day after it was released or whatever they call it. Mm-hmm. Um, the first phone call I got from a friend of mine was from Saigon. Wow. It's a friend of mine who lives in Saigon. So that was when I first kind of really understood what Netflix was. Which, of course, yeah. I don't have because I have no Wi-Fi mm-hmm. connection in my house. So um, <laughs> I said, well, where'd you see it? I'm in Saigon. What, what are you talking about, friend? They have Netflix in Saigon. So the first call was from Saigon. These, these are actually true things. The first mm-hmm. call was from Saigon. The next call was from Dubai. The third call mm-hmm. was from Geneva. The fourth call was from L.A. And I started to get it. Started to. Yeah. You know. Right. But, uh, and this is continued. And it came out in January. Well, I was going to say it came out at a time when basically New York was still in lockdown. So I bet you haven't even really yet felt the full effect of how widespread it's gone, because I would I know that you've always walked around New York and people, you know, recognize you or say things to you. But I mean, this is going to, I would imagine, take things to a whole different level. It's completely different and yeah. because the scale is so different. You know, yeah. the scale is so different, you know, uh, and the other really shocking thing to me is that people recognize me when I have a mask on. Because <laughs> I do not recognize people I know very well with masks on. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. I was stand, standing outside a restaurant a few months ago waiting to meet a friend of mine for dinner. You know, a, a man with whom I arranged to eat dinner, someone I know mm-hmm. what he looks like. And mm-hmm. I'm standing there and a man comes up to me and goes, hi, friend. And I say, hi. I think he recognized me from Netflix. He said, Fran. I said, Yes. He said, Fran, it's Raquel. This is my friend. I'm having dinner with him. He said, how did you recognize me? I recognized you. I said, well, first of all, I didn't grow a beard. Right, right. Um, right. I'm not wearing a hat. You know, so, the, um, so yeah, people do recognize me much more and uh, people from all over the world. Um, and it's, it's completely different. You know, the mask situation, some people can recognize people with masks. Some people cannot. You know, my main response to the mask is I can't believe that there weren't more bank robberies because (laughs) I have thought numerous times, you have a mask on, rob a bank, Fred. (laughs) What are they going to say? I don't know what she looks like. She's wearing a mask. Right, right. Well, with our last two minutes, I hope I can do something that we like to close with just sort of uh, call it rapid fire, but just like the first sentence or two that occurs to you about a few things and then we'll uh, free you from all this. But- what makes, first of all, what makes a real New Yorker? To me, a real New Yorker is someone who, it doesn't matter whether they've lived here for one week, you know, one year, 50 years, the first time you get angry that something changed. Yes. You know, yes. And this literally could be within your first week of living here because, just, right. you know, by happenstance, you know, 
The first week you're living here, you go every day to this place and get coffee. Seven days later, you go there, it's closed. (laughs) What happened to my coffee shop? That's a great one. I think that is, you know, the outrage over change in New York, especially little, tiny, local, personal things like, you know, where you get coffee and, you know, uh, people become completely enraged by this. (laughs) <laughs> That's a great answer. Next one. Uh, aside from Dinkins, I understand that you've basically disliked all of New York City's mayors um, up to and including the current one. Why don't you run for mayor? I bet you would win. I couldn't win this room. Okay. So, <laughs> you know, I would love to be the mayor of New York, you know, yeah. uh, but first of all, I couldn't win. That's the most important thing. Okay. I couldn't win. But second of all, from my point of view is it's a job that starts early in the morning. You know, so I have offered, not that a single person has taken me up on this, even though there's 20 people running for mayor, no one especially great, okay? So even though I've offered this, I will be the nightmare. Split the job in two. You know, many people said you're a nightmare, so I will be the nightmare. Someone else can be the day mayor. They can go to work at like six o'clock in the morning because sometimes the mayor is at press conference at six in the morning. And I think, who's watching this at six? And then, you know, like starting like at five or six in the afternoon, I will arrive, the nightmare, and I'll be the mayor until six when the other mayor comes. I think it would be great. Next one. You apparently, from what I've read, own something like 10,000 books. I am also somebody who loves to, you might see some behind me, you know, own books. I I need to, for whatever reason, I do that. But a lot of people say to me, and I'm sure people have said to you, what are you doing? This is a world now everybody has a Kindle or they have a library where you can go and, you know, take out a book. Why is it important to you to own, to own books? Because I love them. I literally love them. You know, the way Midas loved gold. Brand yes. loves books, so <laughs> right. I really love them. Um, and um, I'm, you know, probably have now around twelve thousand books. This is pared down, you know. Um, although I have to say, in the last year, you know, what I usually do is many books come to my house unbidden. I have to say, like we thought you'd like to see this book, really? Why would you think that? Because right. <laughs> I clearly don't want to read this book. Um, and then right. I buy books, you know. And I, uh, so now. You know, I mean, usually what I didn't do this year because of the pandemic, usually books that come to my house, either because I buy them, you know, and then I was wrong. You know, I really don't like it that much or I don't want I don't like it enough to keep it. Keeping it means I I either love it and so it's going to live with me or Mm -hmm. I probably will read this again because I do reread books. But there's like right now probably four or five hundred books in my house that I do not want. I want them to go (laughs) and live somewhere else. Um, right. But usually what I do is I call the strand, they come and they take them, you know, which you haven't been able to do, but they're yes, ready to yes. go. So you reject the label contrarian. I've seen you say numerous times, I'm not a contrarian. I'm not. Um, but I, there are two points that I would just ask if you're sort of uh, settled into your position, be, be, I can think of no other reason but to be a contrarian. And that is in 2021 to still be smoking cigarettes. And the other one is in 2021 to not have a cell phone, even just for an emergency. Why am I wrong? You're saying the- I'm saying that- that This shows I'm a contrarian? Yes. In those instances. Smoking shows I'm a drug addict. Okay. 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 You know, nicotine is a drug. It's so interesting to me. People have incredible sympathy for heroin addicts who might be robbing you 
I pay for my sickness with money I earn. I don't rob you right. pay for them. So it's a drug addiction, period. One, I am absolutely unequal to stopping. So that's why I okay. still smoke. Um, I don't have a cell phone because I don't know how to work anything. I hate machines. A cell phone is a machine. You have to kind of type on it. I don't know how to type. You have to carry this thing around. I just don't care about having one. It makes other people very angry, especially because they say things like, I can't find you all the time. Well, too bad. Like, <laughs> first of all, why do people have to find me all the time? I'm not right. that necessary. You know, it's like, who am I? Am I like an emergency trauma brain surgeon that you have to be able to contact me? So you can't find me, you'll find me tomorrow, you know? Or it's like, you know, I, I just feel like I don't really want to be found all the time. I right, have right. to tell you that I did not know until two nights ago. They have these, you know, iPhones for already like decades, right? I didn't know that if you have one of these, it knows where you are all the time. Like the phone knows where you are. I didn't know this because a friend of mine that I was having dinner with called an Uber. And so I said to him, do you need the address of this restaurant? He said, no. I said, do you know the address of this restaurant? Because there's no place <laughs> to see it. So he said, No. That's how I thought Uber works. That's how. You know, well, no, I mean, it's there is a there is a setting that you can turn off, but it's true. It does probably, I think, by default. No, he said, yeah. "Look, he shows me this picture." Also, yeah. a little car driving toward right. right. Uh, <laughs> it's like a game. So he said, "I said, but did you tell it, or did it tell you?" He said, "It told me." <laughs> I said, "This is a horrible thing. This is like having the KGB in your back pocket." It's. I, I get it. Let me ask you. I really am curious to know what you think about cancel culture because there are you you're someone who writes and talks a lot uh or you know wrote more but you still i mean you you have uh a lot of opinions that you put out there often on college campuses in normal times and now everybody's so sensitive about everything you've got uh trigger warnings and stuff like that does it give you any pause these days to know how many well-known people have disappeared because of one thing that they may have said or written that went wrong? It depends what they did. You'd have to give yeah. a real example. You know, I mean, you know, the, the, here's the thing. The thing is, things are a certain way that it's bad for decades and decades. Then it starts to improve. And so what has happened is that certain things are definitely excessive. I agree with you. The bad thing about that is mostly some of these things are silly. So it enables the opposition who are the really bad people, by the way, the Republicans, right. not these people, <laughs> to make fun of it. Because it is ridiculous. Some of it is yeah. purely just dumb. you know. Mm -hmm. And it allows them to make fun of it and to act as if the central issue is not true. Okay? So if you make up a million, like, little, you know, picky things that you think, like, come on, that's silly. Um, and, it, and, it, and you point out that it's silly— some people are also pointing out, and you know what also is silly? There's no such thing as racism. I mean, so that that's really the danger of it. Um, the other danger of it uh, to me is people being unable to make a distinction between a person and a thing that they did. Okay? A person and a book. Okay? A person is not a book. You know, although a book is the closest thing to a person that there mm -hmm. is, but mm -hmm. it's not a person. So, you know, can you read a book? by a bad person? Well, you know, we didn't used to know very much about writers. When I was a kid, I was very interested in writers. All you could find out about a writer was what was on the jacket flap. You could say, oh, that's what that writer looks like. I didn't know that he looked like that. There would be four sentences, you know. So I think that a lot of this is just 
excess of the moment and that it will not last because it cannot last. And because also the most uh, kind of vociferous opponents of these very extreme little things are very young. And they, like everyone else, will get old. And one of the reasons <laughs> that things change when you get old is because you get tired. They will be tired of pointing out every little thing. They won't have right. time to do it. They have to do one <laughs> right, thing. Right. Okay, the final ones are truly, I think you can do in, in I, I believe, a, a word or a sentence even. These are pretty short. Will you complete another book in your lifetime? Reading or writing? <laughs> writing. <laughs> reading, yeah, definitely. Writing, yeah. possibly. If you could change one thing about yourself, what would it be? I would be at least one foot taller. <laughs> I'm with you. I can't read anything. How, yeah. How do you think your life would have been different if you had never moved to New York? It would have been horrible. <laughs> I mean, for me. What, what would you be doing today? I, I don't know. I'd be probably sitting there thinking, why didn't you move to New York? <laughs> and lastly, many, many years from now when we're all gone, how do you hope people will remember you? I don't care. I literally do not care what happens after I die. You know, I know that tons of people care. It's my legacy. It's very important to me. I mean, truthfully, you know, I think these people who believe in life after death don't believe in death. <laughs> like, I don't care what happens after I die. <laughs> right, right. Well, I can't thank you enough for, for this and all of the entertainment and, and words and appearances, all of it. So thank you for uh, taking the time. Really appreciate it. You're welcome. Thanks very much for tuning in to Awards Chatter. We really appreciate you taking the time to do that and would really appreciate you taking a minute more to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or your podcast app and to leave us a rating as well. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me via Twitter at twitter.com slash Scott Feinberg. And you can follow all of my coverage between episodes at thr.com slash the race. Until next time, thanks for joining us. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.